Have you ever wondered why Jesus was crucified specifically? And I raised this question because a few years ago, an article was circulated online that I found so helpful, and it gives a series of thought exercises as we contemplate this. And the writer named Jeff Metters, he begins this way, would Jesus dying at the hands of a mugger been enough? Why couldn't Jesus have died of old age with friends and family praying at the foot of his bed? Rather than some friends abandoning him as he has been stripped naked and nailed to a cross in front of his family and remaining friends. And the writer wants you to consider four compelling reasons why this scene of the cross matters for our thinking. The first is the reason of shame. And he says crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. Death by crucifixion was loaded with shame, embarrassment, dehumanization, mockery, brutality, and nearly unchecked wickedness. Does this horror not capture the spiritual significance of sin? Crucifixion is a vivid display of what sin has done. Sin brings shame. Sin is subhuman. It is not what God created us for. We carry the stain and pain of sin. And Jesus stepped into all of it. The second suggestion is a criminal and legal one. Criminal and legal. So shame and then this criminal legal side. He says rather than Jesus being the victim of a street crime... He was tried as a criminal, falsely indicted. For him to die as our substitute, legal proceedings were enacted, both in the case of Barabbas and us. If Jesus had died by choking on fruit, he wouldn't have been dying for our sins. Since Jesus was dying in our place for our sins, he needed to undergo a proceeding and a death where he was innocent in the place of the guilty. This death was actually for someone else. The criminal and the legal aspects of crucifixion reflect the spiritual significance of our sin, the writer suggests. We've committed high crimes against the triune God. We are all criminals. But by Christ's death, he dies the death of the criminal that we might be declared righteous, not guilty, and free. He suggests a third reason, the public nature of crucifixion. The public nature of crucifixion is essential. Jesus died in the presence of nearly all Jerusalem. Jewish leaders, Gentiles, Roman soldiers, they all saw what happened to Jesus. His death was non-ignorable. The whole city would have been abuzz with his trial, the mockery, the march to Golgotha, and the hours Jesus hung upon the cross. This sets the stage for his resurrection. His disciples knew that he died. But a private death, the author says, might have seemed more suspicious. Others in the city might have thought, he died where and when? How would we know? It would not be public enough. 
It would be easy to reject Jesus' resurrection as some private death on the claim of the disciples. No, a very public death of Jesus makes his resurrection all the more astounding. And then lastly, the certification that this offers. And here's what the writer means. Crucifixion was a controlled process. Rome made sure the crucified died. They knew what they were doing. In the case of crucifixion, Roman soldiers are stationed and prepared to make sure Jesus and the criminals next to him were not mostly dead, but all the way dead. They had to be dead dead. It would not have, uh, it would not have been uncommon for a crucifixion to last for days, the writer says. But since Jesus was crucified on a Friday, and Israel was particular about having crosses visible on the Sabbath, the crucified had to be killed. And Roman soldiers began to break the legs of those crucified to speed up their death, keeping the crucified victims from catching draws of oxygen and pushing up with their legs. But when the soldiers came to Jesus' legs, he was already dead and they confirmed it. They thrust a spear in his side to make sure he had died and not merely passed out. Blood and water spilled without a cry from Jesus' voice. He was dead, pronounced dead by a professional executioner. Friends, it's elements like this that I think help us see the wisdom in the crucifixion of Christ. The elements of shame, the criminal nature of crucifixion, its public display, and how the Roman soldiers pronounced Christ dead, all setting up for the glory of the resurrection. It matters that Jesus died in the way that he died because of elements like this. We want to think about the death of Jesus on this cross in the gospel according to Luke. This is the purpose of the incarnation. This event in Luke 23 is what the manger in Luke 2 is pointing toward. The child who grew became mighty in the scriptures and would become the man Luke tells us about here. In Luke 2, Jesus is 12 years old in the temple at a Passover doing his father's business. And I would want us to think of the Luke 23 passage this way. Here again is Jesus at a Passover and doing his father's business. He's on the cross. He is doing the will of God. This is the plan of God from the foundation of the world. In fact, these verses tonight in Luke 23 are about an event so profound, so cosmically significant that every preacher preaching about the scene of the cross always feels that their words fall short. Tonight will be no exception. We're trying to convey the importance and significance of something that is difficult to capture in its glory. And yet we have words to try. We reach with our imaginations and our hearts. We strive to see the wonder and wisdom of the cross. Things must be said about this passage. Let's think about the darkness together. In verses 44 and the first part of 45, a time frame is given and darkness is described. Now they began counting the hours of the day from 6 a.m. When you read that it was about the sixth hour, so think six hours from 6 a.m., we're thinking noon, and there was darkness over the whole of the land until the ninth hour, so add three more. This is where we get the language of three hours of darkness. 
Three hours of darkness from noon to 3 p.m. We know according to Mark 15, 25, Jesus' crucifixion did not begin at noon. It began in the third hour of the day, which is 9 a.m. All of that math is to help us see Jesus has been on the cross for approximately three hours. And now the final three hours of Jesus on the cross are going to consist of hours of darkness. And not just some little shadow. There was darkness over the whole land. And you should ponder that. There's no indication that the darkness was over the entire globe. That wouldn't have been as necessary for the people to witness. A witnessing of the region covered by darkness would have been frightening. This is the middle of the night in the middle of the day, it looks like. What's going on here? You don't expect hours of darkness over the land from noon to three. Something's wrong, if that's the case. Writers also point out that the darkness could not have been an eclipse. Passover took place at a full moon when an eclipse would be impossible, nor would an eclipse last for three hours. This is a supernatural darkness over the land, three hours long. Think about how unusual that is. Roman soldiers would have crucified people already. This is not their first crucifixion experience. This is not, however, the stuff you expect to have happen. Darkness in the middle of the day. Think about the criminals on Jesus' right and left. How strange and foreboding this must have seemed. What were the religious leaders thinking? What were the Pharisees and Sadducees thinking? Just hours earlier, they had condemned him at a Sanhedrin meeting. Turned him over to the Romans for crucifixion. What were Pilate and Herod Antipas thinking? They had even agreed earlier in Luke 22 and 23, Jesus was innocent and nothing the Jews had accused him of was he actually guilty of. If you think back to regional darkness in the Old Testament, you might think of the book of Exodus when darkness covered the whole land of Egypt in the ninth plague, a region of the world covered by a judgment of God. The darkness was there for a period of three as well. Not three hours in that case, three days. But here, this three hours might mimic, if you will, an expression of divine judgment. Darkness would have language in the prophets about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord that would come, a day of judgment and darkness and gloom. And in the middle of the day, when this would be completely inappropriate, darkness reigns over the land for three hours. Every passing minute. Can you imagine the conversations in the crowd? What is going on? People who were there for a bit of the day and then thought, we need to leave. We don't know what's happening. There's nothing normal about this scene. I wonder how many people were there from nine to noon and then were no longer there from noon to three once this started. Would you even want to be in the region? Like if three hours of darkness is settling over the land, what's next? And of course there would be more sights to see. Darkness in the middle of the day is appropriate with Jesus' own words from Luke 22, 53. The arresting crowd came into Gethsemane and he said, this is your hour when darkness reigns, he says in Luke 22, 53. So there's nothing coincidental 
about darkness and the death of Jesus on the cross there or the crucifixion of Jesus leading to his death during these hours. We have Old Testament reason to be wary of the situation, concerned about the judgment of God. In John's gospel, in chapter 8, 12, one of Jesus' claims is, I am the light of the world. What What does Luke tell us is happening in verses 44 and 45? There is darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And to play on that notion of sun, here you have the life of the sun coming to an end and the light of the sun coming to an end. And we should imagine as well that at the death of Jesus, that noon to 3 p.m. darkness ceases. What would you deduce from that scene? If you came to see a crucifixion or if you're there as a Jewish leader or a Roman soldier and you've helped facilitate this whole thing, I don't know how many second thoughts you might be having, but at the same time, you would realize nothing normal is happening here. This is extraordinary. We can be certain that the centurion was thinking interesting questions during all of this for sure. The light is going out, the light in the heavens and the light on the cross. At the end of verse 45, the second thing we want to hear about is the torn veil. It tells us in verse 45, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This is likely the inner curtain that separates the most holy place from the holy place. You can see in temple designs and in the tabernacle designs, there were multiple curtains in the vicinity of these dwelling places. But the most significant rending of a curtain would have been that one that concealed the most holy place. That's the curtain that's torn here. And I think the writer of Hebrews plays on this idea in Hebrews 9 and in Hebrews 10 when he speaks of the death of Christ once for all and that the veil of Jesus' flesh was torn and a new way has been opened. When you hear of Jesus' claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life, we have to consider here approaching God, drawing near to God in priestly terms that Jesus is the way of reconciliation between sinners and God. You don't go to the temple. The curtain of the temple being torn in two is a massively significant event. And in the gospel of Mark, we're told that it was ripped from top to bottom. Well, you would need quite a significant stepladder to do this. Estimates are that this curtain was approximately 90 feet high in the curtain during the days of Jesus' ministry. The bulk of the curtain, the height of the curtain, helps us to see that the rending of the curtain is another supernatural act of God and going from top to bottom communicates something heavenly. It's a way of saying God is doing this to his house. Now, If we were visiting your house and you went over to one of your curtains and you ripped it from top to bottom, I I might ask a question, but listen, it's your house. You can, if you want to rip up the curtain, that's fine. You would think it was very strange if I went up to one of your curtains and I ripped it from top to bottom. You think, pastor, what are you doing? And you'd have a good reason to ask that. This is God's house and he does what he wants. And in the, late, in the days of the Babylonian Empire, he brought the Babylonian army against the temple to destroy it. This is the house of God. And Jesus had earlier in the week driven out on Monday buyers and sellers and money changers, 
because they were misusing the temple of God. All of those earlier actions were like a prophet acting out something that was like a parable, a parable in action. And for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, what that would suggest is that the judgment of God and the Son of God is coming near to you. And the curtain of the temple tearing is a way of saying not only is the day of the temple finished, no longer is it needed, its place in redemptive history has reached its fulfillment, the dying of Jesus and the rending of this temple veil communicates something about the death of Jesus. It says to us, like what Jesus said in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, we haven't looked at the resurrection which Luke 24 gives us. But surely, this is the destruction of the true and greater temple that we are seeing on the cross. You don't need the physical temple in Jerusalem. Jesus' body, he is embodying this truth. The temple veil is ripped as Jesus has been torn. His body has been beaten and crucified. The veil before their very eyes to God is being rent asunder. Jesus' death on the cross is a temple destruction, and his resurrection from the dead is a temple rebuilding. He himself uses this language in John 2. In three days, I'll raise it up, and he will. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Can you imagine the priests going into the holy place? I don't know what kind of sound that made. It wouldn't have been quiet. This isn't like dealing with some sort of small gum wrapper like I will sometimes try to do and don't want to uh, make it too loud. It's just a small piece of paper. But something of this scope, of this thickness, of this height, it would have alarmed the priests. And added to the darkness outside, can you imagine the questions that day and in the days that followed? What happened in that city that day? Listen now to the prayer of Jesus in verse 46. The first part of verse 46 specifically. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Oh, what a glorious saying this is. When you add the sayings of the cross in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, from the lips of Jesus, there are seven. This is one of the seven sayings of the cross. And in this case... We're prefacing the statement with this language, calling out with a loud voice. I assure you, you don't get stronger by spending six hours on a cross. So at the ninth hour, as the death of Jesus is imminent, you can imagine with all of his faculties in, in check, it's as if he gives up his spirit, not the Roman soldiers seizing the life of Christ from him. In other words, when Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. What are we reading about in verse 46? I'm laying it down. He goes on his terms. The hour came when it was sovereignly ordained and not a moment sooner or later. Father, this is a prayer. So this saying of Jesus is a prayer of confidence. What is Jesus alluding to? The Psalms. He's been praying and alluding to Psalms on the cross already. But in Psalm 31, 
Here's what the writer says, and the writer's name is David. Psalm 31, verse 3, to God he says, You are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they've hidden for, for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. When you keep reading in Psalm 31, you see not only in that alluded verse to Psalm 31.5, but in the whole of the psalm. David is writing with comfort and confidence to God in the midst of his trying, distressing difficulty. Here is Jesus, David's greater son. Here is Jesus, the one of which David and his own suffering in that ancient day was a type and a shadow. Jesus, the true and greater David, speaks the words of David. And from a cross, as the son of David, prays to the Father, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit and with a loud voice. We can draw several implications here. First of all, the surprise that a loud voice was even possible at that juncture. I don't imagine many Roman soldiers saw people die with a loud voice. That's attention getting. What did we just hear? Is he yelling from the cross and not whispering it, but so that all might hear it? Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. An implication we can draw in this prayer is that Jesus, the Son of God, dies according to his human nature, and yet the Son of God, with the Father and the Spirit, is not separated, disintegrated, fractured. Rather, there is this statement here of fellowship. And union. In other words, the cross is not the end of the father-son relationship. That's not what you read here. Into your hands I commit my spirit. In Luke's account of Acts, that long 28 chapter book that covers so much of the early church life in those first 30 years, he records the death of a man named Stephen. And Stephen's death has statements that remind us of Jesus' death in Luke's gospel. For instance, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It's as if Stephen is saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. Dying, if you will, like Christ. Stephen says in, in Acts 7 verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Which reminds us earlier in Luke 23 when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Here is this man with an unusually loud voice after various strange things like darkness for three hours have settled over the land and his prayer is about union and fellowship with the Father. Remarkable. And then, in the last part of verse 46, this moment. And having said this, he breathes his last. This is the report of Jesus' death. His lungs here no longer fill with air. His legs no longer push up to breathe. His head hung motionless. Life is gone from his body. The narration of it is so simple. It's so simple 
that it's as if someone said to Luke, how briefly can you put things? He breathed his last. Such a short moment given the whole story arc of Scripture. The whole story arc of Scripture has led up to this, hasn't it? This is the culmination of prophetic hopes, promises, covenants. The last Adam has surely died. The wages of sin is death. Just look at the cross. The greater Isaac was now placed on the altar and would not be delivered by a ram in the bush. The father's son has died. Here is the greater Moses. His mighty exodus and deliverance would be through the pains of his suffering and death. This is the greater David. This is how he will establish his throne and everlasting kingdom, secured not by avoiding death, not by avoiding the cross, but by drinking the cup, embracing it, submitting to it, going through it to the uttermost. Jesus will defeat death from the inside. Jesus is the ultimate righteous sufferer. Hebrews 12 says his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus has kept the law of the old covenant. But he's not just a covenant keeper. He's also a covenant maker. What does Luke tell us at the Last Supper? He's sitting there with his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is for you. In Luke 22 verse 20, Jesus is alluding to what he would do, his death on the cross, which is now, and he breathes his last, described for us. This is history's greatest prophet, the word made flesh, now with no life in his flesh. He is the one who's come to reveal God as God. And like the Old Testament prophets in the former days, he was opposed, he was persecuted, he was killed. But Jesus' death would be a victory. He's the greater Jonah, descending to death and anticipating his deliverance on the third day. He's the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15, who has been struck by the serpent, but not involuntarily. He has laid down his life. This is a striking he has welcomed. This is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, crushed according to the plan of God. He breathed his last. And then having heard from the criminals on the cross earlier in Luke 23, having heard from Jesus, we hear now from a soldier in verse 47. Let's look at the centurion's response. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, what did he see? Well, there's the darkness. He wasn't in the temple. Probably didn't know anything about the curtain. Though he would have found that disturbing as well. We also know that at the death of Jesus, according to Matthew's gospel, there was an earthquake. The centurion saw what had taken place, and having also heard Jesus' words to the criminal about paradise, having listened to Jesus pray and allude to Psalms, having committed himself to the one he called the Father, the centurion saw all of this, And he praised God. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) He praised God saying, 
Certainly this man was innocent. Now the Jewish crowd, the mob of Luke 23, had called for Jesus to be crucified, though Pilate had said, I find him not guilty. And he said to the crowd as well, Herod Antipas didn't find anything deserving death either. The centurion joins that chorus of witnesses. Even the second criminal on the cross rebuked the former criminal and said, we deserve this sentence. We are here justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. So Pilate, Herod Antipas, one of the two criminals, the centurion, not only then are some Jews and Gentiles allying against Jesus in Luke 23, there are also Jewish and Gentile voices declaring the innocence of Jesus in Luke 22 and 23. Certainly this man was innocent. Mark's gospel says the centurion also uses the the phrase son of God. I do not imagine the centurion understands all of what that means. All that that would imply from Jesus' own identity teachings, claims, and miracles. But this centurion knows enough that this man believes He's praying to God and calling God his father. And that would make the one on the cross the father's son. And that one, given the way he died and all that he has said, the strange appearance of darkness, the earthquake, all of these things, the centurion says, we did not get this one right. That man was innocent. Certainly. This doesn't even get us, give us a sense of Like he's on the fence. You know, I wonder, you know, there's a sense of confidence and proclamation with that word, certainly. And yes, his innocence mattered because on Passover, you had to have a spotless, unblemished lamb die. And what Herod and and Pilate and these other voices are helping us to see is that here is the unblemished lamb offered on whom is counted now the sins of sinners for a satisfaction of death. Justice and judgment satisfied with the cup. Verse 48 takes us to the scene right after the centurion's declaration, a dispersing of the crowds. This is not irrelevant information. You say, well, wait a second. You know, the words on the cross have ended. Jesus has died. The centurion has just spoken. The incredible darkness will have come to an end at the ninth hour, 3 p.m. But look at the reaction of other people who begin to leave. Verse 48, the dispersal of some crowds. And then in verse 49, some others watching from a distance. Verse 48, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle. Because listen, you know, it's not that there was no other entertainment around. But people would go to witness in droves the crucifixion of criminals. They would go with their families and they would crucify people right outside the city gates along main roads. So the people coming into the city would walk by them. This was something the Romans were not ashamed about. They were eager for you to publicly see it and to be affected by it. 
So these have assembled for the spectacle, and when they saw what had taken place. So you're given the centurions, the description that when he saw what had taken place, and then in verse 48, when these saw what had taken place. No words from them are recorded in verse 48. It says they returned home beating their breasts. I think it is reasonable that these crowds who have assembled for this spectacle would include those in Luke 23 who had said, crucify him, crucify him, who were eager to see it done and to see it through to the last gasping breath. And then Jesus commits himself to the Father. Darkness covers over the land. I think we can imagine that among those eager for crucifixion, though probably not only those, people are leaving beating their chests, which is a symbol of distress and grief and lament. This is a group of people leaving from the cross who are not feeling triumphant. They are beating their chests as if to say with their actions what the centurion said out loud. I wonder if that man was innocent. I wonder if what we are seeing around here in these previous minutes and hours is the judgment of God. When they saw what had taken place, they went home beating their breasts. And lastly, in verse 49... Luke tells us about groups watching from a distance. Look carefully the identity of these, these uh, members of the group. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance. Followed him from Galilee makes crystal clear these are not the, the acquaintances of the centurion, nor women who had been following the centurion. These are acquaintances or people who knew and who were known by Jesus. And the women who had followed him from Galilee, they stood at a distance watching these things. It's intriguing, isn't it, that it does not say his disciples are there. As a whole group, they had disbanded. We recognize from John's gospel that the apostle John is near the cross for at least an exchange of conversation, though perhaps for much longer. All his acquaintances. This is to remind us that outside the core group of the 12, there were other people who listened to Jesus, were healed by Jesus, followed Jesus, spread news about Jesus, and were trying to figure out the same kinds of questions that the disciples would have asked. Who do you think he is? So they're standing at a distance, and they stand with women who had followed Jesus from Galilee. Luke's gospel is very clear in Luke 8. There are a number of women, some of whom are named, and they stand at a distance. And I think the very next passage and into chapter 24 as well help us to see the role that several of these women are going to play. Several of these women standing at a distance are going to see someone go and get that body. It's going to be Joseph of Arimathea. They're going to follow him. 
That body's going to be prepared for burial and they're going to accompany that body to a tomb. And they're going to prepare to return to that said tomb on the first day of the week when the Sabbath is over. Friends, these women who had followed him from Galilee and standing at a distance, there will be among these women those who go to the disciples who say, we went to the tomb, the stone was rolled away, he is risen, the angels say. So these who are standing at a distance, just a subtle foreshadowing of a role that several of these women will play in short order. When you keep reading in the Psalms, you can find in Psalm 38 what the righteous sufferer of Psalm 38 says in verse 11. My friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague. My nearest kin stand far off. And some have suggested that in verse 49, Luke is alluding again to Jesus, the suffering, righteous son of David, whose acquaintances and his mother Mary, for instance, there would be a kind of distance implied with language like this at some point and especially after his death, when the bodies would be attended to. As we've looked at the passage tonight, friends, we've seen and heard. Okay, we've, we've seen in our mind's eye three hours of darkness, the failing of the sun, the rending of the temple torn from top to bottom. We have heard We have heard the words of Jesus, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We've heard the words of the centurion, and we've also seen once more. We've seen the crowd returning home, beating their chest. We've seen the women at a distance, watching these things. And yet, of course, the message of the gospel is that none of us would remain at a distance with Jesus. The worst possible response to hearing of the good news of Jesus is that you would just be intrigued, watching, interested, curious, but with some distance between you. Because to come near to Christ and to follow Christ is personal and costly. And yet Jesus calls sinners to follow him What these people need to do is not just watch Jesus. They need to keep following him. They don't need to just watch. They need to keep trusting. They don't need to just watch. They need to keep hoping and remembering. And all of those things will, God willing, happen in the verses and passages to come when the news of his resurrection begins to spread among them. But in Psalm 38, 11, the scene of the sufferer is clear. My companions stand aloof. And once again, we see the one who is fulfilling and pulling together these strands of characters and prophecies who on the cross is fulfilling them. We can see what Paul means. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1. About how divisive and perplexing to many a message of the cross is. Because Paul says in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, I wanted to know nothing among you 
but Christ and him crucified. And that the message of the cross, he says, is foolishness to the Gentiles, a stumbling block to the Jews, but to we who are being saved. And I think that means for Paul, those who have eyes to see what God did there, what was transpiring on the middle cross, we would say with Paul, this is the power and wisdom of God. The power and wisdom of God. Many families travel and enjoy special times of focus and celebration and different work opportunities and hour changes, all kinds of things that happen given a week like this. Not all of them would think the same thing about the cross. We live in a culture that's familiar with, okay, an image of a cross and what Christians might say. And yet, it is incumbent upon us as people who, who speak of us as, ourselves as Christians and who would urge others to follow Jesus to proclaim the cross as the power and wisdom of God. This is a crucifixion in which the power of redemption is not based in what was happening with the nails or the loss of blood. It was the laying down of the life of the one who is the son of God. It was not the crucifixion, but the substitution that becomes the power and wisdom of the cross for us. So let us remember with Paul and celebrate with Paul and rejoice with Paul and God willing not be those who stand at a distance, but who behold the message of the cross draw near to the saving Christ and follow him.